0: Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. I am Beth Shank, host of the podcast, and this is our seventh in our Nurses Actions for Climate Justice series. Today, Dr. Robin Evans-Agnew interviews Bradley Thompson, a mental health nurse and educator, and one of the founders of 350 Tacoma, working to reduce climate change and its inequitable impacts. Enjoy.
1: well welcome everybody to another edition of nurse actions for the climate justice podcast Uh, my name is robin evans agnew i'm one of the interviewers for this series and in this series we're showcasing actions nurses are taking around the globe to address and advance climate justice for people on our planet guys i am totally ladies and gentlemen and all people in the world i am totally excited uh, because sometimes serendipity happens And right on your front doorstep, uh, you meet somebody who you just want to show to the rest of the world and have a conversation with. I haven't really had a chance much to talk to Bradley before this, uh, but I met him on Kwe Kwe Ute. Um, The little salt marsh that uh, he has been part of uh, restoring uh, inside a massive petrochemical industrial uh, plant in the middle of our tide flats right here in my back door in Tacoma, Washington. I'm excited. Uh Bradley's worked as a nurse and an educator in both outpatient and inpatient get this mental health settings. So this is going to be super exciting to talk to Bradley about that. He'll soon be joining the Veterans Health Administration. He's one of the founders of 350 Tacoma, a local chapter of the international climate justice movement. And um, he is uh, obviously working on this uh, salt marsh project located deep in the industrial Tacoma type Flats on tribal treaty territory of the Puyallup tribe of nations. So I'm so excited to have you Bradley, welcome. Thank you, Robin. I'm so excited to have
2: um, you invite me to do this. And it's, it's so fun just to chat with you. And it was fun, fun to meet you
1: and to get your volunteer
2: help out there
1: isn't it crazy like you walk around the world and um i am you know i talk to people i'm like oh this is a really interesting person and then and then i go i'm a nurse and they go oh i'm a nurse too so i was sort of surprised that there is a this nurse leading this project uh with with the salt marsh so tell us a little bit about your connection to environmental justice and to climate justice
2: yeah, so, um, I mean, Tacoma's an interesting place, as you're well aware, and it, it is so fun to meet another nurse here. Um, there are some of us, you know, working in environmental activism or climate activism, but sometimes we don't, our paths don't cross for whatever reason, so it is really fun to talk to somebody who c- kind of gets it from a nursing perspective, which is kind of how I, I see it, But but to kind of understand, I think you need to we need to talk a little bit about Tacoma and kind of the history of Tacoma, so unlike Seattle, which is only 30, 30 miles north of here, Tacoma really has been on the receiving end of legacy environmental pollution for a century. Um, dating back really to the Asarco smelter, which polluted, you know, with lead and arsenic over a thousand square miles in this region. So. Tacoma has a long storied history of um, pollution, especially down in the Tide Flats, which is otherwise known as the Port of Tacoma. The other interesting part of it is that um, all of this area was um, and is the ancestral territory of the Puyallup tribe of Indians, who really have been here stewarding these lands since, since time began. But they're one of the few tribes in the nation, actually, who, you know, their reservation is here within the city limits. And so they're a very urban tribe where the city grew around the reservation land that was given or ceded to them really in the uh, 1854 Medicine Creek Treaty. And so, again, all of the Port of Tacoma was once actually tribal treaty territory guaranteed to them in perpetuity, but subse- subsequently was stolen and finagled away from them and ultimately purchased from them. And so that's really what we're talking about is the Tacoma Tide Flats really is otherwise known as the Port of Tacoma, but it's also really the ancestral homelands of the Puyallup tribe.
1: This it's amazing. And so this place, little, it's, it's go amazing, ahead. Well, it's amazing place because it's like, you know, you, you think about that 1854 Medicine Creek Treaty and I, I'm correcting myself because it was Puyallup tribe of Indians, not Puyallup tribe of nations. Um, but the, but they, but that treaty, what you pointed out to me, Google Maps actually shows the treaty line right across our, right across the Thai flats. and um, it doesn't sort of like label it very well, but it's there if you look at it, but then you told me that that was the extent of the salt marsh, so everything beyond that is just infill, all human extractive garbage, piled up on garbage, Put put out there in our tide flats, right? That that's that's sort of how this. We're based. The whole tide flats is now being transformed through extractive industries. Yes, and and the other
2: important piece of this to remember is that from the tide flats, you look up and you see kind of looming is is Mount Rainier, which is, um, in traditional languages, was known as the Mother of All Waters, and so the Puyallup River um, runs directly from glaciers up at the mountain down and that's really its end point, its delta, its estuary, is is what is known as the Tacoma Tide Flats or the Port of Tacoma. That really was where the Puyallup tribe had their um, you know, that's where they they fished and they gathered food. And those, those were their grounds right there. And so yes, much of that has been filled in, it's been dredged, it's been polluted beyond recognition, really.
1: But the tribe is still fishing today, they're still present, they've been really involved. So how does that, how's the climate justice work? So how did how do you end up with the with a little salt marsh? What 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 happened with that idea?
2: It's I mean, it's a bigger story where I got involved really in climate activism or environmental activism when um after I'd moved down here in 2008 for a nursing school, actually, and I think it was 2014, we read in the newspapers about a proposed project coming to the port of Tacoma, which was a a methanol refinery, and really being proposed by the Chinese government. But it wasn't just a massive methanol refinery, it was actually uh, bigger than any other methanol refinery in the world. And then what, what happened in the next subsequent months is they doubled that. And so it wasn't just the biggest in the world, it was double the biggest in the world. And again, this is being cited. I mean, literally, um, you know, the, the tribe's reservation and, and where they currently, many of them currently live, is very close to what we're talking about in the tide flats. So they're really downwind from these massive fossil fuel projects in the port. And so, long story short, many of us uh, became kind of activated as a result of trying to fight this massive project and that's really how I got involved or started to get involved and connected to other people doing this work and so that led to really um, uh, secondarily there's another project this LNG project which was also uh, down on the tide flats well the methanol project because of this uprising that happened literally overnight really became defeated where those the project proponents left left the town and went to other towns to try to to do the same project
1: and, okay. and got defeated up and a little bit up and down our coast in Washington State, right? There's no yeah. medical projects now existing in Washington State, right? That's right. But a, lot the, a lot of the resistance started here in Tacoma. I went. I remember going to one of those meetings. It was massive. They had it in one massive. of the convention centers, and it was yeah. standing room only at the back. It was. I mean, I've never seen that big a public comment period. I think they went through until taking public comment until about you know, 1130 at night because it were just people lined up right outside the halls for it. It was an amazing amount of uprising for that work.
2: Yeah. And it's like that really so many of us who got involved um, became involved as a result of that was just kind of experiencing, experiencing the injustice of that, um, not just to a community that's been historically on the receiving end of pollution, but also because of the tribe, because of, um, you know, Tacoma is one of the most diverse cities in in the state as well. It's also been a poorer community than than Seattle. And so in many ways it's been it's been on the receiving end of environmental injustice forever.
1: Yeah people people talk about people make jokes about Tacoma in Seattle mm-hmm. all the time and it's related to the industrial uh, pollution that Tacoma people have had to bear the burden of for many, 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 many years like you said yeah. 100 plus years.
2: So back to the salt marsh. And so yeah. <laughs> really, um, uh, I got involved in other groups, but then many of us had become interested in, in forming a local group of 350, um, the, the International Climate Justice Movement. And so with the help of 350 Seattle, we kind of came together and, and organized ourselves and wound up founding a, a local group of it. And then honestly, it was kind of serendipity where as part of the, the work of researching local fossil fuels, we, we wanted to see, there's an oil terminal in the Port of Tacoma that receives tar sands oil from Canada. And so we wanted to find the, the terminal, You know, the receiving, the place where barges come in because it comes all the way down the Salish Sea. And so in finding it, we saw a green space next door to it and, and went in and found it on a map and then found, found it, you know, was able to enter the site because the, the gate was unlocked. And so I wound up calling the city and actually asking if, you know, if people ever adopt green spaces like that. And so talked to the city and they were very receptive of this project. And so it wound up that 350 Tacoma Um, became the site stewards of this small salt marsh located uh, between an oil terminal and a container shipping yard.
1: You guys can't see me right now I just got this big grin on my face because it's honestly if you come to Tacoma you have to see uh, this this place it is sandwiched in between the industries you walk down this path and it is a gift of love to um to to the uh to the it's the blair waterway that it opens up onto right so it's a gift of love to one of these big deep channels that's been dredged and made for these huge ships that come and go these big oil tankers and it's right there but it's also this sort of act of protest as well it's this act of resistance that is just it's just it's just beautiful um to see
2: i love that you got that and i do think part of the project was bringing people into the port um, because the port ports, you know, an industrial city like this, ports are often very protected places where the, the public doesn't feel welcomed. And it's an intimidating environment with huge trucks and pollution and the air is often quite toxic. And um, I have volunteers who complain of breathing problems and headaches and, so it's, it's not a pleasant place to be a lot of times. But by coming down there, I don't have to say much for people to understand the point of the project, which is you know, to, to see how the, the tide flats once looked, because this was pristine estuary that really supported not only indigenous peoples, but the biodiversity, really, that would come with a, a pristine estuary like that, the salmon, the orca. Um, and so to see that juxtaposed between kind of these massive uh, fossil fuel or or uh, other and in heavy industrial projects that are all paved over and you know with with huge pipelines, it, you get it just by being down there. That's kind of the point of it.
1: Yeah, I was looking at I was looking at the Three Fifty website before we had started to have this conversation, and you make Three Fifty makes the argument um, uh, uh, that. That uh, these these fossil fuel industries really don't hire that many people, right? And and it's funny when you when we were on the site doing the restoration last weekend. Um, And we were planting, we were putting plants in, we were putting mulch on. So all of these sorts of things that are regenerative activities right inside this little place. Um, Tons of people in a sort of like shipping cargo place on the, on the, on the, to the south of us, but to the north of us, where the, where the oil tanks were, Zippo people, no one, right? And and that, that idea of a just transition, that idea of like, that, that's also what spoke to me by being there. It's like, oh, I get it. We we need jobs. If 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 we're if we're really thinking about saving people's jobs and 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 having a just economy, then we've got this. Is another reason why you don't want to just have oil refineries because they don't really produce that many jobs. That's right. <laughs> And it's also, I mean, by being down on the Tide Flats again, you
2: see, you know, there's there's spectacular views and there are access to water. Mm-hmm. There's there's life there that, that can will come back if we give it half a chance. But it's like a city could have a balance of good jobs. You know, people talk about Chief of commerce talks about family wage jobs. That's great. I want a family wage job, too, as a nurse. Um, but it's like those jobs are not located in fossil fuel industry. It's just not where you have numbers of people working. And so this idea that we could have a, a better future um, where people actually have good jobs, but also have good clean good environments in which to live and in which people don't suffer disproportionately because of where, where they happen to grow
1: up or where they happen to live. Yeah, amazing. Let's let's switch a little to that. Uh, you want to have a, a family a family wage, um, and and this work on uh, where you 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 know you use the word suffering. Um, how does this connect to your overall work as a mental health nurse? Because mm-hmm. we don't often have mental health nurses on the environmental justice podcast. It's so great to have someone someone with the sort of skills and experience and background that you have. How does this connect to your uh your daily work as a mental health nurse?
2: Yeah, it's it's such a great
1: question. And
2: and I'm not often asked that because I think people don't understand the connection, perhaps, or or I don't I don't do this work with a lot of other healthcare professionals, which is sad sometimes to me. But yeah, I mean, as someone who works in mental health, it's like I talk to a lot of people. It's it's part of my job is to talk to a lot of people. And I don't just do that, you know, I think as nurses, we don't just see patients through that lens. I see everyone I interact with through kind of this nursing lens. Mm-hmm. And, and when we talk about suffering, people are suffering. So I, I do this work, you know, or I'm, I am privileged to do this work sometimes in collaboration with young people, especially let's say with Sunrise Movement. Young people are suffering. Young people look at their future through a lens that that looks scary, that looks uncertain. Um, And that's not only having mental health impacts, it's having physical health impacts as well, which I see. But but in my work, it's like when I talk to young people or really lots of people of all ages, when this subject comes up and in Tacoma, it's, you know, we have also faced historical heat waves this past year, wildfires that are burning out of control that have locked down our city for a week at a time. Racial violence, right? Racial violence, yeah. People are experiencing these impacts. And if you open the door, they're understanding the connections and willing to talk about it. But, But they're undergoing, you know, I think of the social determinants of health. And I think about how, Stress isn't the killer necessarily. It's stress with a feeling of disempowerment. Yeah. It's stress without feeling like you, you, can, you don't have the, the power to do anything about it. That's mm-hmm. what kills people. And honestly, I think that's what also impacts mental health. And that's how people are feeling is this uncertainty where they look at a future that looks uncertain and scary. But then they look at people in positions of power and see that people aren't really doing anything or enough to tackle it. And that's the part that feels really anxiety provoking and scary to people.
1: Yeah, this is, um, it's, it's been, um, you know, a lot in my mind too, kind of leading up to COP26 and what we're going to find out there. But this is the first time nurses have been invited to the dance, right? Really, in, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a way that to have an exhibit, uh, we've certainly been around with the World Health Organization, but not necessarily in the same kind of prominence as we're hoping to have this time. Um, one of our colleagues on the, on the steering committee, Jessica LeClaire, uh, wrote a really inf- paper that influenced me um, early on. She talked about these, these sort of um, this issue of despair, disease. Uh, you know the the, the the issue of despair in the country, right? Diseases of despair. She, I think she she referred to it as, and I wasn't entirely comfortable with that. But it kind of touches a little bit. It's making me rethink that. That that's despair isn't giving up, is it? I mean, because when we talk about people who are suffering. They're suffering, but they're enduring as well at the same time, yes. but, there's, but there's a real motivation in terms of a mental health nurse to want to alleviate that suffering, alleviate that despair, uh, figure out a way to change that in an upstream way, right?
2: Yes, in an upstream way. And that that's the really interesting part here is that w- we know the solution. The solutions exist. Uh, we can choose the solutions. We don't have to live in a state of despair or, or hopelessness around the climate or around environment. We have access to solutions. What we lack are people in positions of power who are courageous enough to take these positions or to act. And, and that's the part I think with despair is that as nurses, yes, we're there, we're there with people as they, as you know, I think of nursing as I'm not there to cure the disease necessary. I'm there to be with the person who's experiencing this illness and and, to meet them where they're at and to guide them from there in in lots of different ways. The same is true with the climate. The answer is to not just go to mitigation and somehow survival. The answer in this day and age is to look to leaders and say, science is clear. We don't need more science. We don't need more talk. We don't need more awareness. We're aware of the problems and we have the, the solutions to address the problems. The answer now is to act. And that and that's exactly where this is leading up to with
1: Glasgow is act. The answer now is to act, right? That's yeah. that urgency of now. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And nurse, nurses are all about action. Nurses know how to act and to intervene. Oh, nurses show up with assessment, that's right?
1: That again. <laughs> Nursing <laughs> is nothing without action. Yes. Nursing is nothing without action. And 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 the, the action, what, you, what you, you, you sort of like spun this around really nicely to be thinking about that, that, the, that perhaps that most important challenge for nurses is to take leadership on world stages to say enough, right? To start changing this around. Um, we're, we're dissatisfied with the leadership. It's, it's clear from you, <laughs> you're dissatisfied with the leadership That is in 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 currently making these very very conservative decisions when there's more of a fierce urgency evinced by what we see in our clients what we see in the patients what we see in the communities that we work with
2: yes and i would say not just globally really it's like climate action needs to take place locally regionally statewide nationally and then globally and again, we're, we're seeing a lack of leadership at all those levels. Um, and much of our work here in Tacoma is at a local level. And right. you know, I think sometimes they, they feel like they get a pass because they look up and they go, well, no one's doing much regionally or statewide. You know, And, and so they're, they're also cautious because there's no one kind of leading the way at bigger stages. And, and that's where globally it matters so much to to set really aggressive you know aspirational goals and to act with this urgency that's needed
1: i agree i, we, I was just coming off of that recent conversation i, I was listening to in the in the city council kind of debating how how the the land use is how how they want to change land use and to um uh, to continue to allow uh expansion of fossil fuels um even though uh, it's is at a more limited level uh, and and uh the comparison the only comparison that they were making was to whatcom county to another county in our state that is that has made a decision about this and they're only the only the, they wanted to ruffle their feathers and say we're doing better than whatcom county and then and then the council guy from whatcom county called in and said actually i don't think you are <laughs> in the public comment period i loved it it was um, great but but i mean like that's that's so 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 you're doing both. You're like healing this salt marsh. You're thinking about these big picture things. What what actions should what What's the message for other nurses listening to this podcast, Bradley? What What, what do you want nurses to do uh, to achieve climate justice? What What, what should what actions should nurses be taking?
2: Yeah, I I think you know there's great organizations like Physicians for Social Responsibility, um, which which have. Which are active, I think, all over the states. But you can plug yourself into these groups that are already kind of, um, you know, waiting to receive you with open arms and kind of plug you into these ways in which you could actually be very effective. Nurses and healthcare officials, honestly, at, at any meeting I've ever been to or public meeting I've ever been to, they're listened to you do have you know use use that power and privilege use use the you know we're perceived to be a, a, an ethical voice or a an informed voice so use that privilege to actually speak up and again like I say demand action from from leaders there's ways in which you don't have to you know you don't have to be at the salt marsh you don't have to join a group like 350 Tacoma but you could, you could go to a public hearing or testify at a public hearing once a month or submit an, an email comment. And so I think that's part of it is not just as individuals, but also hopefully as um, you know nursing unions, nursing, nursing organizations that I would like to see more visibility among, among these groups at the table wherever they can affect change, I
1: think would be great. Nicely put, Burley. Thank you. That's a great call to action. I have one last funny question for you. That photo, the headshot that you shared with us, that's the Little Marsh right behind it, right? Yeah,
2: that's it. And that—that's the container shipping yard. The the crane, those massive cranes behind me.
1: That's lovely. Um, I want to. I want to. I, I. have you, is there anything else that you want to say to the world uh, before we close this podcast? <laughs> no, I just
2: like I say, I'm. I'm. I'm a. I'm someone who came to nursing later in life, and it really came to it from, I would say it grew over time, and I'm very grateful for the the educators that I worked with who really instilled in me a sense of social justice within nursing, and I I see nursing through that lens. And I see us as as being able to play this huge role kind of in, in the ways in which um, change needs to happen at so many different levels to achieve any kind of climate justice. And I feel like nurses, nurses are really uniquely situated to play a really pivotal role in that work. And so I hope, I hope people, I hope to see our profession rise, rise to that occasion that this is, you know, climate change is, is the biggest problem humanity's ever faced. And and we need to treat it like that. We need we need to treat it without reference and and to, to put everything we have into it to help help affect the change that's needed.
1: Thank you so much, Bradley. That was wonderful. Um, this ends our climate justice uh, podcast for today. Uh, tune in because we've got another two or three coming up, uh, some exciting ones to listen to. Uh, thanks very much. You have been listening to the Annie Climate Justice Podcast Series.
0: Bradley Thompson says it well that, quote, nursing is nothing without action, end quote. He is demonstrating that in his life and work and reminds us all that we are in key positions as nurses to influence change. Thank you, Bradley and Robin, for sharing this fascinating conversation with us all. Please join us again for the climate justice series of the podcast. Check us out at envirn.org. And please subscribe, comment and share the podcast. Talk to you next time.